This episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum, robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well-lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. That's right udallas.edu slash pillar. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon slash Pillar. Ed, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing lovely, J.D., and may I say it's delightful to see you. It's great to see you as well. I am here. We are recording this episode from Ed's office uh, here in um, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan region. We're recording this episode on Saturday, which is unusual for us. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know, we usually record the show on on Friday, but we're recording this show on Saturday because yesterday we spent the whole day, uh, we were invited to speak um, as a sort of a, as sort of the entertainment, very honestly, at um, uh, at a conference held at Catholic University of America for an organization called the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, about which I don't know a whole lot, but which seemed to be a sort of uh, a fellowship, if you will, of... of um, of Catholic scholars from very many different disciplines, and uh, we were asked to kind of. Um, I, I honestly what thought were we it, doing? I, I don't know what we were doing there. I mean, I, I, my my impressions of the organization were formed entirely by the people in the room uh, for the conference and the other speakers, and by that measure, the caliber was intimidatingly high. So I, I just assumed they'd brought us on as like you know the stand-up comics. Right. To, to break up the sets like right. you know, we're gonna everyone have... else there gave a like we we spent most of the day there yesterday and we just um we we spoke about i mean the, the theme of the conference was truth right and we um, spoke about that yeah about but truth. sandwiched in between you know in-depth academic presentations on Thomistic philosophy and the you know the nature of truth and end of lying and all that sort of thing they had us um you know bringing a sort of tabloid tone to the whole of air and and I, I mean, I, I had a great time. I, I'm still somewhat intimidated after the fact that they, <laughs> they had us on. You shouldn't have been intimidated because you did a very good job elevating our rhetoric to, uh, to, to fit in with the, the culture. Of I the talked academics. about Twinkies. You did talk about Twinkies. That's I, true. I don't know that I could be accused of That's elevating true. the tone. Why did you talk about Twinkies again? I forgot. I don't remember. I, well, because this is the thing: is I the original idea we'd had was that because, and I mean. This is known, and I, I have, I'm not embarrassed to say you are the better public speaker of the two of us. That's not true at all. It, it is true. I think often about a, a lecture you gave at a Canon Law Conference. Now you keep four or five years ago, hanging your so head on good the, that I think often about it. I, I, you probably are shamming there, and no, it was a barn burner. Everybody well, still talks about it in our universe. It was a barn burner. That's not true. You couldn't even tell me what the lecture was on. Vosestes. No, this is not on Vosestes. Vosestes type stuff. Mm. No, the procedural norms of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, yeah. but which is in the neighborhood of OSS. It was dry as toast, and people told me afterwards I talked too fast and I didn't have an I didn't have enough audiovisual accompaniment. It was this is beside the point. Um, but you are a very gifted and engaging public speaker. I mean, you were look. I, I was intimidated going to do this thing yesterday, but you on Thursday you were giving lectures at Princeton, so I don't want to hear any of this nonsense about. I was you know, invited to give a lecture at Princeton University on Thursday, and I was. Um, very uh, humbled to be invited to do so. I learned, I realized the key to um, being a crowd pleaser at, at Princeton. Um, it took me a little while, but I figured it out. Is it to it tell people how wonderful Princeton is? Yeah, I basically to make jokes about the inferiority of um, Harvard, Dartmouth, Penn. Right. Uh, they really like that. Yale, they really like that sort of thing, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, that, that that probably scans for me. Um, but no, I, I, had, I had assumed that going in there that you were just going to talk for... 15 20 minutes so had i but i was i i just i don't i don't know what it was i only spoke for about three minutes and then i handed it over to you no you talked for about 10 and then oh. i sort of got and got up and batted clean up for 10 minutes and just you know vamped uh at, but people were really like uh, embarrassingly lovely to us and yeah, it was I, nice it was i mean it was really, it's really it, it isn't i mean i'm i i know i come across as smug and superior I know I come across that way because the comment section routinely tells me that I come across as smug and superior. Um, but <laughs> having having people like the caliber of professors that were there who are, you know, I'm not an academic, but even I knew their names, um, 
you know, coming up and shaking our hands afterwards and saying that was really great. We really enjoyed it. And I was like, I, I don't understand what's going on. I feel like we brought the seltzer and the cream pies here. But <laughs> anyway, no, so we were doing that yesterday, which is a long way of saying this is why we're recording the show on Saturday instead of Friday and why you're in D.C., which is lovely. And I wish you were staying longer. Um, well, I might be it because there's a tropical be. storm a brewing. I um, my flight has my flight this afternoon has already been delayed by an hour, but I have a feeling that's just the beginning of what's to come. I I fear that may be the case, but if I get to enjoy your company for an extra couple of days, oh, that will so be lovely. Nice. Okay, uh, we need to talk about uh, you know what we need to talk about um, the Rugby World Cup. We we need to talk about Rupnik. Oh, it begins with an R. So yeah, I wanted to kind of do an Encanto bit where I would say we need to talk about Rupnik, and then you'd say we don't talk about Rupnik. No, 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 no. No, everyone talks about Rupnik, it seems. Yeah, Even know. people who have no business talking about Rupnik put out reports on the man. But there is a lot of news. There is a big piece of news, an important sort of development in L'Affaire, Marco Rupnik, this week. So, Marco Rupnik, if you if you don't know this and you listen <laughs> to our podcast... If you haven't been reading any church yeah, news but, in the last but two years... Marco Rupnik, if you don't know this and you listen to our podcast, uh, Marco Rupnik is a, was a member of the Society of Jesus and something of a sacred artist um, who created mosaics in churches around the world. The mosaics depict in a kind of quasi-Eastern, quasi-early church style, very scenes from the life of Christ. They look like manga cartoons. Everyone's got big eyes and weird facial expressions. Mm -hmm. Some people say they're very beautiful. I don't see it or get it. There's no accounting for taste. There's no accounting for taste, right? But but Marco Rupnik, anyways, fed it around the world um, in many circles for this stuff and Having been commissioned to create sacred art in very many places, it emerged last year that he had been accused of various kinds of sexual abuse and misconduct. Eventually, it emerged that he had been briefly excommunicated um, in a Vatican investigation for um, the attempted absolution of an accomplice in the sin against the Sixth Commandment. And then it emerged that he had been accused over the course of some period of time of abusing religious sisters in a religious community that he helped to found and of sacrilegiously mixing the creation of his artwork with this sexual abuse, which we've reported on, basically using um, women as models for sacred people, including our Lord, and at the same time uh, abusing them, grooming them, soliciting them, um, and um, contextualizing coercive sexual behavior in sort of a sacred context and talking talking to women about sort of kissing them as he would kiss the Lord and these kinds of really terrible, sick, twisted things. Um, and Rupnik has become... Rupnik was uh, dismissed from the Jesuits earlier this year, but there has been a great deal of controversy surrounding this guy for now almost a year, um, if not maybe even a little more, um, because of uh, the widespread perception that the Holy See did not sufficiently investigate or take seriously some of the allegations made against him, that the Jesuits didn't take seriously restrictions put on his ministry, that the Jesuits, in fact, commissioned him to create a piece of sacred artwork and then to celebrate a mass um, for that sacred artwork in one of their most important churches at the time that he was under ministerial restrictions, and that um, and that on the whole, that Rupnik remained a consultor to Vatican dicasteries while he was under restricted ministry and the subject of these allegations and after he'd been excommunicated, and that on the whole, the Holy See Curie of the Society of Jesus and the Diocese of Rome have all, in different ways, seemed to look the other way or enable the continued influence of Marco Rupnik on the church, despite these profound and grave allegations. Uh, not so not just the it, serious scandal. Yeah, not just the influence of Marco, the celebration of yeah, Marco Rupnik, right. the elevation and promotion of him as a as a great mind, as a kind of spiritual leader, an artistic, you know, uh, genius, and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, I, the thing that always really strikes me about the Rupnik case is if you read what the women that he is said to have abused um, say he did to them, which, you know, we published a, an English, an translation, of, with a, yeah, an English yeah. translation of an interview with a woman who said that she was sexually coerced, coerced and, and maybe sexually assaulted is the right phrase. In, in overtly spiritual contexts. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the kind of thing where like if you created Marco Rupnik and what he did is fiction and put him in a movie or a TV show, Bishops would be issuing letters of condemnation, calling for masses of reparation. Catholics would be picketing Actually, in front of movie theaters. Actually, they'd be saying that the movies were anti-Catholic, that it was a caricature yes. of the clerical sexual abuse crisis, you know, like a detached from reality yeah. in order to make clerics seem monstrous because of the gravity, the profound gravity of the things that have that have been accused of. Yeah, he's Marco Rupnik, the, the stuff that he's accused of is far worse than fiction. 
And so his status now is that he is... Um, Rupnik has been dismissed from the Society of Jesus, but not formally laicized, because the Society was able to dismiss him effectively for charges of disobedience with regard to his restrictions. But the Society itself didn't have competence over the allegations of sexual misconduct that he faced, and uh, many of which the CDF determined were time-barred, barred by prescription from being prosecuted. So he, he remains technically a cleric. Of course, he remains a priest because sacramental ordination is forever. Um, he remains technically a cleric, a member of the clerical state in the church, but without uh, faculties and effectively you know, sort of de facto suspended by virtue of his dismissal from the Society of Jesus, such that he could not he, he could not engage in active ministry without a bishop willing to take him in and give him faculties. But at the same time, he, he is not formally laicized either. So he's in this very odd sort of space between um, a sort of between space that um, that is somewhat unusual. It makes him very nearly what we call a cephalus without a head um, because he doesn't, properly speaking, have a bishop who has responsibility for him. He's, I suppose, incarnated in the Society of Jesus, but not a member of the Society of Jesus. And so it's just this very kind of weird canonical no man's land. It is. I mean, it's a weird canonical no man's land that is entirely the Jesuits' fault. Um, how, how so? That's interesting. Well, they could have laicized him. How so? Well, because the what we used to call in, in the in the canon law game the special faculties for dealing with problem clerics who hadn't committed an overt delict against the old book six um, allowed diocesan bishops and um, heads. Are you sure about the special faculties extending to provincial superiors of religious institutes? I am one hundred percent sure about this because I wrote a thing about it back in June, I think, saying basically the Jesuits could have and should have laicized Marco Rupnik if they were going to expel him from the order. And I checked um, and I've I found a Vatican document that actually explicitly lays out that the special faculties do, in fact, extend and apply to religious superiors and, in fact, had been used by some. And more to the point, the new book six, which incorporated what were the special faculties into the law, I think, make it even more explicit that yes, absolutely. So not only did the special faculties apply, but it was handled by the same dicastery. It was handled by the dicastery for clergy. We didn't even have to go to the dicastery for religion. A provincial superior could bring special faculties cases to the, to the congregation for clergy in the same way that a... That a um, Diocesan bishop can. Really? Yes. 100%. Okay. Um, and in fact, I mean, I can... If I looked I'm, it up, I'm looking at the special faculties right now because I did not know that. Uh, you won't find it in the text of the special faculties. Uh, it is definitely in Predicati Evangelium. I know that for an absolute fact that it's comp that it's defined in the congregation, now the dicasteries, whatever. Uh, hang on. Let's... I vaguely remember us having a conversation about this in the past. And I think we consulted with some religious about this who said that they had made use of the special faculties. That is true. But yeah, I, I remember that now. I, I, I agree with you or I accept what you say. Now, I know you do, but I mean, we have canon law listeners who might think I'm shining them on, and I. <laughs> okay, this is from Praetorate Evangelium. The Dicastery for Clergy is responsible for handling, in conformity with the canonical norms, matters having to do with the clerical state as such for all clergy, including members of institutes yeah. of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life. The same dicastery is competent for cases of dispensation from the obligations assumed by ordination involving diocesan clerics and members of institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, you know, this again is an articulation of something that was um, a, a principle when these were special faculties before they were rolled up into um, the, the new book six. But anyway, so the Jesuits could have, and I, I think as a matter of course, should have gone for the laicization of Mark Rupnik when they expelled him from the order. I mean, if, if they think he's a bad enough seed that they were kicking him out of the Jesuit order, they should absolutely have said, well, and we're going to stop you being a cleric so that you're not going to be this wandering acephalous priest, as you yeah, say. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only bishop right now that I think can be said to have direct supervision of Rupnik is the bishop of his place of residence, which is according to people who keep seeing him around, um, the Diocese of Rome, which would mean, Card well, I mean, it would mean Pope Francis is the Bishop of Rome, properly speaking, but more immediately Cardinal Angelo de Donatus, who's the, who's the Pope's vicar for the Diocese of Rome. Um, and it is, of course, Cardinal de Donatus, uh, which has brought Marco Rupnik back into the news because, you know, this week he, um, he had uh, his, his vicariate, the vicariate for the Diocese of Rome, publishes a brief statement saying that they had conducted a, an independent investigation, a visitation of the Centro Aliti, which is the sort of artistic and theological commune that Rupnik 
founded and led up until his public disgrace. And um, he said, we, we had this visitation and we found absolutely no problems. None. There's no problem here at all. This community is well-functioning. It is lovely. We are glad that they have canonical personality and juridic status in the Diocese of Rome. They're doing a great job. And it, bizarrely, they singled out for praise. This is, you know, this uh, this truncated statement from the vicariate summarizing the findings of the independent investigation, which was conducted by a canon law professor in Rome, um, singled out the community's members for praise for basically keeping their mouth shut about accusations right. against Rupnik right. and saying how... These members had, you know, despite a sort of media firestorm around them, had not raised, you know, concerns about Rupnik. And- not, not only that, but said, you know, and because they had a heart of non-judgment and not thinking themselves superior to anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, right. you know, yeah. we are all sinners. So right. if Marco Rupnik is a serial sexual abuser carrying on in the center, well, who are we to judge was basically their... Um, yeah. Conclusion, and then even more bizarrely was there was this line in it that said, "In fact, the investigator found, after examining voluminous documents, um, that the process uh, investigating this is a, a CDF process uh, run by delegation by the order, uh, sorry, by the Society of Jesus. So nothing to do with a vicariate. Who Cardinal Didionatus has been clear, he never heard a single thing against Mark Rupnik. The diocese never heard any accusations against him. The first they knew about it was, um, you know, in December." Uh, after, you know, his execution had already happened and been removed and when all this stuff first broke in the media, basically. Um, but th- somehow this independent investigator uh, examined, according to him, a ton of documents about the the criminal canonical process against Rupnik for attempting to absolve a sexual accomplice sacramentally. And he's concluded that the process was flawed and the the imposition of the penalty of excommunication was, was dubious at best. And I mean, I don't... I, I, candidly, I don't know what the hell is going on here. Like, yeah. these are these are sealed canonical files treating a matter under not just the pontifical secret, but the the sacramental seal, and somehow a guy working for the diocese of Rome who had no jurisdiction over the case. The diocese has no jurisdiction over the case. We know that because Cardinal Detonatus has repeatedly said, I had nothing to do with Marco Rupnik. He wasn't my problem or my responsibility. Right. Now feels he's going to just weigh in and say, oh, we've got hold of all the secret files of the DDF and the Jesuits on this, and we've decided neither one of them knew what they were doing. Right. Trying to rehabilitate a guy who, you know, again, it's not like, you know, um, there's, you know, a sort of fumo of, suspicion around Mark Rupnik. Like dozens of women have come forward and given graphic accounts of what happened to them. The Jesuits own investigator into the historical accusations against Rupnik, which couldn't be canonically prosecuted because of the statute of limitations has concluded. They are highly credible. Let's just pause right there for a minute about with regard to couldn't be canonically prosecuted because of the statute of limitations. Sure. We've, I think addressed this on the show before, but it's worth noting in canon law, the statute of limitations is called prescription. It's a period of time after which um, prosecution for certain kinds of criminal offenses is no longer possible. Um, but um, uh, prescription can be waived when uh, it's judged either by the by the CDF or actually, as a matter of fact, the Pope. Prescription can be waived, and in my experience, is waived. You know, my own experience with penal cases is waived when there's either sufficient proof or sufficient scandal. In fact. Um, when was there a rather grave and notorious case set in recent years in which prescription had to be waived? Uh, Teddy McCarrick. That of Theodore, formerly Cardinal McCarrick. Who I, I was accused of a lot less in was terms it, of volume. Who was accused of fewer, who, who faced fewer allegations. From fewer people. Yes. Now, there is a distinction to be made in that the thing which was prosecuted at the CDF was the sexual abuse of a minor, whereas Rupnik to my knowledge, has not been accused of the sexual abuse of a minor, but to numerous vulnerable persons in the most concrete sense of that, persons who had a hierarchical relationship to Rupnik because he had a supervisory relationship in their religious community. Um, So there is a distinction there, but I don't think, it does not seem to me that the distinction would be so um, profound as to impede the DDF from uh, from considering the, the waiving of the statute. And to the best of my recollection, Ed, if I recall... This went to Feria Quarta, didn't it? Did, 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 we, did we report this or have we just heard it and we're talking about it now for the first time? I, I don't remember because we've, we've written a few stories on this now. But yes, it was, we were told that it went to Feria Quarta. That is the sort of um, standing, the standing regular review committee of the cardinal members of the 
dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And, and I mean, you're right that, you know, their prescription is habitually waived, I would say, in cases where it's considered in the interests of justice and t- touching a particularly egregious uh, crime, especially if there is, as in this case, considerable um, testimony from the victims and, and evidence possible to be got. And, and I think, you know, there, a lot of people said, well, the decision not to waive prescription uh, is proof that there's a plot to sort of, you know, support Rupnik and cover for him and keep him in situ. And I mean, I'm not one to to buy into conspiracy theories. I'm a big one for reporting conspiracies when you can, but I, I don't I don't like the theorizing of conspiracies because it's not, I think it, you know, if you go into a story that is complicated and, you know, volatile enough with a mindset of, well, there could be a sort of sinister um, plot behind all of this, it skews how you collect the facts and how you put them together. So I prefer to arrive at the conclusion of a conspiracy rather than start with a theory of one. Right. Um, But in this case, it's hard to avoid because this is where, this is a division that you and I have often because, um, where you see a conspiracy, I often see ineptitude. But please go on about conspiracy, and then I'll talk sure. about ineptitude. Uh, I, and I'm not saying that I'm convinced. That, I mean, I'm increasingly. I am now sold that there is there is a motivating force for the for the protection of Rupnik. I think at this point you can't avoid that conclusion. Now, where that force is coming from, um, that that's that's still very much an open question, and we can talk about that maybe in the second half of the show if we want. But uh, just taking, for example, the refusal to waive prescription from the DDF. That refusal, despite the fact that, as we both just said, in our experience, it's fairly normal to waive. Yeah, it. at least not surprising. I, right. I, yeah. Okay. So that taking for, an ice- for prescription to be waived, it's sure. not surprising when prescription is waived. That in itself, I don't think, as a data point, is indicative of something. But it's the context. Um, there, that that decision was made in the context of the investigation of the delict of attempted absolution of a sexual accomplice in the confessional. He was convicted of that the penalty required by the law that is excommunication was imposed and declared, but for, you know, basically only as long as was necessitated by the time it takes to process the paperwork to lift it. Like it was like three months or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, anyone who has familiarity with these cases knows that by the time you go through the formal steps of sending the letters back and forth between the DDF, the society of Jesus to Marco Rupnik back to, you know, back to the Society of Jesus, back to the DDF and back down again, like that takes three months. So it basically was imposed and lifted at the same time. Well, is, there was, there, I think what, what the congregation has since said is that there was a sort of immediately apparent contrition on his part. Sure. But that's what I mean is it was immediate. Yeah. The, the three months sounds like, oh, there was a three month sentence. No, it was, in, it was instantaneous. And effectively. I've, I've had, a, I've had cases in which a person in which the DDF declares the penalty of excommunication immediately prescribes um, some means of demonstrating um, contrition and then um, says notify us as soon as these have been accomplished and the penalty can be lifted. So that's not all that unusual. You know, sure. I've had that in seal cases and other kinds of cases as well. Agreed. Um, although sometimes the, the... I've seen, for example, violation of the seal cases where the cleric who has incurred a latex intensity excommunication and needs to... Uh, ha- is it, it faces some demonstration of contrition which exceeds three months needs to take a course spend a period of time in retreat you know um, make amends and those things take time whereas it does not seem with Rupnik again we don't have the decrees nobody has the decrees except for the investigator for the diocese of Rome which has and no business Rome having them either, right? we don't have the decrees but it does not seem that sort of um, any kind of uh, conditions for the remission of the penalty were established for Rupnik it just to sort of his effective apparent demonstration of contrition was sufficient for whatever reason. So, so. Right. That's, so that's data point two. Data point three is when this penalty is imposed, declared, and immediately remitted. I mean, we use the, the legal terminology is declared. That is to say it was an automatically incurred by Rupnik himself in the, in the authority, the canonical authority, in this case, the DDFI, the Society of Jesus. Um, just declared that the fact that he had incurred it on himself, um, it wasn't publicly declared. And this is what I what I'm coming on to. This is the third data point, which is that they told no one. Father Souza, the Superior General of the Jesuits, has has given as this Rupnik story has broken in the media these sort of tortured and ever evolving accounts of what the Society of Jesus did or didn't do with Rupnik when he was found guilty of sacrilege um basically said well you know yeah he was executed but that was all i mean you know they lifted the penalty it's fine and then when it turned out that he was also a serial 
sexual abuser. They asked him again, it's like, well, did you, did, you didn't think to restrict his ministry? Of course we restricted his ministry. He, you know, we absolutely restricted his ministry. Well, why didn't you say that when you said, you know, the thing about the excommunication? Well, you didn't ask. And, you know, I don't, I'm not in the business of volunteering information about sexual, clerical, sexual predators. Right. You know, why would the public want to know about that? And, um, but I mean, so they told no one to the extent that Rupnik remained an, uh, an expert advisor to, you know, not unimportant Vatican departments like the Congregation for Clergy, which right. inter alia is the department that would, should be right. hearing his case for laicization. Uh, you know, they just didn't tell anyone, even in the Vatican. The other Vatican departments didn't know. And they certainly didn't tell anyone that had to do with Rupnik in daily life. Um, and, and so that's sort of data point three. Data point four is that, you know, everyone at the, around the Centraletti has, you know, said this is a witch hunt. Their words, uh, Marco Rupnik has been subject to a lynching. That is the words of the current director, Marco Rupnik's successor, uh, an Italian lady theologian who had a, had a nice private audience with Pope Francis on the working day before the Diocese of Rome statement came out. Um, so the, the, the Centraletti has remained openly defiantly in favor of Marco Rupnik, despite what he seems to have been doing to decades of religious women um, in, in the course of all of this. And then on top of that, we get this bizarre statement from the the vicariate of the Diocese of Rome saying, we found no problems with the center. And so far as we can tell, any action that's been taken against Marco Rupnik for crimes for which he could be tried or couldn't avoided being tried because prescription hadn't run. Um, we don't think they're, you know, we don't think they knew what they were doing. And as far as we're concerned, Marco Rupnik may very well be innocent. And at that point, it's like, this is too much. I, I'm sorry. It's too much. Every possible canonical avenue against this man um, that could be pursued has been closed off and shut down. And when the, when the law didn't allow for it to be dismissed, when the law didn't allow for it to be ignored, it was minimized and hushed up. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's like I, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't do conspiracy theories, but that to me is not a theory. This is a, this is an undeniable data pattern. I have a theory about all of this that I want to talk about, um, but it seems to me Ed, that we probably ought to talk about it after a word from our sponsor. Well, all right then. After these messages, we'll be right back. I remember that TV jingle. Yeah. yeah, they had that in England. No, they had that in Chicago. <laughs> when was... You were a boy until you were. Tan or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is, as you said at the beginning of the show, brought to us by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. That is right. The University of Dallas uh, is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum, robust graduate and professional programs in business, in ministry, in education, in the humanities. Their home campus is, of course, in Dallas, Texas, but they have... A really big and cool, very neat Rome program, which I've yeah. visited and been very impressed by. But, you know, I think the cool thing about the University of Dallas is not only the campuses that they have, but, um, like, one of the things that I have been struck by in our own visits to the University of Dallas and in talking with them is the university seems to have a very clear sense of what it's about, the idea of a university, the purpose of a university, to seek the truth and then to, like preserve and to build on and to continue the efforts of um, scholars, like to advance real scholarly work and then to seek the truth and to invite students into a kind of community of learning. Or Newman talks about a university as a faculty of friends and to kind of invite students into this community of learning and in so doing both to like seek the truth together and to build on what has come before. Uh, there is that. And I, I tell you what really impressed me when we were there, because I mean, everyone who listens to the show knows we, we've been to the University of Dallas. We have. We, you know, we have shirts and hats uh, to prove that we were in Texas and, and things like that. But uh, one of the things that I really loved about, and this was not just talking to the president of the school or the faculty that we met, but also to talking to the students is, is, you know, the concept of truth you mentioned. And I, it's true, it's seeking the truth. But what I, what I really liked about it was like everyone you talked to in the university had a, had a very distinct understanding that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Uh -huh. Like there is a bet, like the search for, like, and you get this in, you get this in all, it's the foundation of all secular universities, as far as I can tell, but you also get this in a lot of Catholic universities, which is to say, which is they sort of say, well, if we say we're seeking the truth, it means we're never sure about anything. Right, right. That every truth that we, you know, might encounter is sort of conditional or transitory or up for, you know, up for future, you know, debate or discussion or reversal or whatever. But I like that, like they understand the Catholic understanding of truth is no, there is, there are absolute fundamental truths that you build on in the search for the and fullness the of truth, truth is a person right, that right. At the, 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 
that the, the fullness of the truth is a person, Jesus of Nazareth, the image of the invisible God. And that seemed to me like a truly Christian approach to, um, to the intellectual life seemed to me to sort of be infused through all of the disciplines um, and their sort of interconnectedness. Right. Just in the way that we had conversations with people at the University of Dallas. I mean, it's a very holistic approach to education. I love that. That it's a, it is a it is a proper curriculum, not in the sense of a sort of you know, well, it's a sort of interchangeable slate of things that you plug and play and different things. That no, it, it the whole thing um, is organically intertwined. Uh, you know, the math, the natural sciences, theology, literature, fine arts. You know, all of this stuff. Like it, it's interwoven. Like you can't pick it apart. It's not that you just say, "Well, I can pull this peg out and put this one in." And you know, I. It's want. amazing to see as big state universities begin to cut whole swaths of the humanities and language and things like that. The University of Dallas is very integrated, so that they're preserving this method of even the earliest universities, the scholastic universities, the students are gaining an understanding of the math and natural sciences and theology and literature and fine arts, all of which are important and all of which, from my observation, have really serious scholars working at the University of Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you can't tell people, yes, the University of Dallas is sponsoring this show, but we're actually... Quite. We actually like it. We actually really yeah, like we it. We really uh, like the University of Dallas. So check it out, udallas.edu slash pillar. Um, ch- check it out. Even if you're just c- kind of curious about it, go to udallas.edu slash pillar so the University of Dallas knows that our listeners are are checking it out. But um, yeah. but do check it out, udallas.edu slash pillar. Uh, the University of Dallas is the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. I'm I'm going to do it because I didn't know that we had like a web handle a slash, at the university. Yeah. So I now need to know what that actually means for U-Dallas. us. udallas.edu slash pillar. All right, we are back, Ed. Uh, we're back uh, from that time talking about uh, the University of Dallas. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. And now back burn to the ground, talking. Burn the ground, Now, Oh, yeah. So the one thing about the University of Dallas, this is not our commercial now. They're not paying They're us They're not now. paying us for this. But uh, one thing about the University of Dallas that was really cool is we went there in February for Groundhog's Day. And they have this, uh, like, for whatever reason, and there's some history to it. I don't really remember what it is. But their big annual feast is Groundhog's Day. And so we went to this, like, huge party. There was, it was, like, on a field, and there were um, bands. There was a big stage, and there were bands, and there was, I, I know there was beer. I don't, I have no idea if there was food, but there was beer. There was beer, and you got up on stage, as I recall. Well, yeah, so. <laughs> and you started, like, shouting, we, burn, Groundhog, burn, into a microphone. And... We talked some guy, uh, like, on this, like, the some security guard into <laughs> Into letting us. Um, go what do you up there. mean, us, Kimosabi? Yeah, okay. I talked some guy into letting me because I was like, "Oh, we were here to be speakers at the college, which we were, but not on the stage at the." No, we were there party. to have a serious and sober conversation yeah, right, with, with the college the, president. With the college president, but we we talked this guy into letting me go onto the stage and talk, you know, like do some kind of call and response with the students or whatever. But it, that was very fun. Um, yeah, that was very very cool. But even apart from that, that party. What I thought was cool about that party was it was just, um, it was human. It was just kids having fun. It was culture. It was, it was Catholic, but it was not sort of, it was Catholic by, by its very nature. Like we're celebrating something together and having beers and dancing and there's music. And again, I don't remember if there's food, but there might've been food. Like we're doing this, we're just like glad to be here and glad to be together. And there's kind of a fellowship. And, and so it felt very Catholic, but it wasn't sort of overtly Catholic. The bands weren't like, um, and as much as I know, you know religious you know, Christian rock or something like that. Oh, um, on the contrary, because when we were listening to them and I was like, oh, you know, student band, that's cute. I, I like that they built them a proper stage and, you know, got the got the full works and everything. But, the, you know, it was a decent student band we were listening to and we showed up and then it had the it had a, a girl, a co-ed was the was the is there a feminine version of front man for Singer. the band? So, pardon? Singer. Singer. Um, but then at a certain point, I the band started playing a song, and I recognized the hook, and I was like, wait a minute, this is an Amy Winehouse song. And I was like, uh. Oh, we've talked about that, because I don't like, know who that is. I, and I was like, don't don't reach, kid. Like, you know, you're doing great, but that's, I don't know. I nailed it. She nailed it. I was I was oh. genuinely blown away. Like, that was music I'd pay to listen to. Like, they were doing really well. Yeah, I, it was cool. Again, this is not the commercial, but that was cool. This is not the commercial. I just really, <laughs> but that was cool. No, this is now me just actively fishing for an invite to Groundhog Day 2024. Right, yeah, that's what it is, is. I do, I do hope they'll invite us to Groundhog Day again. I do. And like, if my uh, kid goes to the University of Dallas, again, this is not the commercial, I will be the kind of parent who like, I think my kid will be really frustrated because if my kid goes to the University of Dallas, I'll probably be the kind of parent who like, goes on down to Groundhog Day and like, tries to you act like he's want. a young person, you know, like, 
Hey, fellow uh, kids. Yeah. You know how they do honorary doctorates and stuff at universities? Yeah. Well, we asked the president. No, I know. We're not going to, but let's be realistic. They're not going to give us honorary doctorates. And I don't expect them to, but can, is there such a thing as honorary bachelor's degrees? <laughs> like, that's what we merit at colleges the world over. It's honorary bachelor's degrees. No, but hear me out. If all we're looking for is the ability to go to Groundhog Fest, you need to be an alum. We need to be honorary alums. Exactly. So if they give us an honorary bachelor's degree, we're honorary alums, and then we can we can go to you know Burning Groundhog. And yeah, okay. Well, if the if the University of um, Dallas is listening to this, Ed, Ed will take a university uh, an honorary bachelor's, and, and as long as he's getting one, I don't want him to be the only one. So I'll I'll take one too. All right. Well, I guess I don't know if we're keeping them as an advertisement. <laughs> We've asked we just them for can't stop. And honorary bachelors. Okay. Um, okay. I ha- okay. So when the Rupnik uh, stuff started, now time to talk about serious stuff. When the Rupnik um, allegations first started to emerge, I heard from a number of um, Italian clerics, some of whom who are are quite conservative, are not sort of what you would regard as aficionados of the pontifical administration under which we currently labor. Um, uh, or, or like strong personal devotees of, of, of Francis the First, peace be upon him. Um, but I heard from a number of them who, 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 who said to me that it was their belief that false allegations were being proffered against Rupnik, or allegations were being exaggerated or hyperbolized about Rupnik in order to harm the Holy Father. They thought it was. They thought that. that I, I heard from a number of people against sort of clerics of a certain age who, who, who are Italian, all of whom had the theory, which they must have either come to on their own or gotten somewhere, but um, all of whom held this idea that um, Rupnik was sort of being criticized in order to besmirch the Holy Father with mud. And, um, And I don't know why they had that idea. I don't know if it exists in the Italian media. I don't know if it was kind of a, a talking point in, in, among in Italian dioceses or in the Roman Curia or something like that, but I wonder if it's possible that part of the reason why the Holy See, you know, was reticent or something like that is that there was some pervasive belief that the Rupnik stuff was politically motivated in such a way as to sort of harm the Holy Father because Rupnik and the Holy Father. Are, I wonder if it's possible that people perceive that because do you remember the case of? Um, of uh, Bishop Barros in Chile, uh, the whole sort Juan of, Barros, Juan Barros, who who was accused of basically having been complicit in the horrific abuse of a priest named Father Caridima, and Barros was said to have been sort of uh, um, aware of it and insufficiently acted and been present even when people were abused by this Caridima, and and at, and at first this was before the McCarrick scandal even, but when this first came up, the Pope. Had the Pope been said the people who were making these accusations were including politically the motivated. He had been convinced. He called them communists. Was, yeah, he said that they that the Chilean media was being led around by the nose by the leftists, and that the leftists had sort of created all of this to disperse the name of Bishop Barros, who, who was conservative. So there is, and the Pope later repented of that effectively because the, only after Cardinal O'Malley. Yeah, that's kind what I was going to say. Cardinal O'Malley intervened and said, like, that's deeply offensive, Pope Francis, that you would say that. Um, but even while the Pope repented of it. There is seemingly this pattern of thinking that these kinds of allegations can be politically motivated or contrived. And if you recall, that's always been sort of, it's always been said that John Paul II was sort of skeptical of allegations of clerical abuse against some of uh, the priests with whom he was closest or some of the priests whom he sort of empowered in certain ways because his experience in communist Poland led him to believe that sexual abuse allegations would be Politicized. So there seems to be this pervasive pattern, not only of Francis actually, but there seems to be this habitual or pervasive pattern to to be skeptical of sexual abuse allegations because of the potential that they might be political weaponry. And I wonder if, to some extent, that's um, what's been going on uh, with Rupnik, or the reason why there seems to be so there seem to be so many people in in, in influential positions with regard to Rupnik who seem not to have taken all that seriously or treated with sufficient gravity that the allegations made against him. Um, maybe I think I'm missing the, you know, whatever cultural piece of the puzzle there is that makes anyone leap to the conclusion that criticizing a guy who has dozens of women who say I was spiritually groomed and sexually abused by this man 
um, somehow a, a sort of crypto anti-Francis move. Like I just I don't I don't because, get I don't get how that Brian Nick is known to be sort of the artistic arm of the Francis universe like that Rupnik is not to been a close uh, closely supported by Francis remember it was Francis who asked him to preach the Lenten exercises for the Roman Curia and stuff like that so I don't think it was in fact I think we reported that Francis hadn't been responsible for that oh, invitation someone else who had made yeah. the invitation but that's and, but that's my point is like I get it that he's a I get it that he, they're both Jesuits I think and I get it that Rupnik has ugly art that's fashionable amongst people who also tend to like things like you know people of a certain yeah. people of a certain age and and the felt bounder crowd of which they're playing. well i was going to say the the sort of hyper the hyper twitterized um whatever the whatever the old the opposite of you know how like the 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 bad application of the label of anti-francis is anyone who kind of you know looks or smells a certain way whatever yeah. the revert polar opposite of that is like what is the person who you know you you it has, it has nothing to do with being pro Francis. It has to do with being pro a whole bunch of other stuff. But their their kayfabe, their shtick is, you know, we're we're the super fra- we're, the, we're the Francis super fans, you know, the sort of Austin Ivories of this world. Like I know, oh, actually, Austin Ivory, perfect example. Uh, who's been like serious Rupnik defenders? Like, yeah, maybe he did, you know, use the the chalice from his mass kit to sexually abuse a woman. But you know. I love his art and it's staying on my wall. And you know, he actually said, he actually said that. Um, So, I mean, you know, those people, like I get how they're, you know, quote unquote triggered by the idea that this guy is a serial sexual abuser. But like, again, I just, I'm lacking the direct line. Like you you brought up Karadima and Juan Barros, but it's like, okay, but Pope Francis went into bat for that guy. Pope Francis talked uh, into a microphone to a plane full of reporters and said, anyone who speaks badly of Juan Barros is basically a communist shill. Like, uh, did I miss the part where he did that for Rupnik? No, he didn't. but But I'm not saying that Francis went to bat for him. I'm saying it is possible that part of the reason why people were skeptical of the initially skeptical or why ecclesiastical officials who seem not to have treated seriously the allegations against Rupnik did so because they perceived that these were pl- meant to be political attacks against Francis. I, okay. I mean, it just seems it just seems a reach to me as a reflexive first stop with the Rupnik scandal. So that's why I'm confused by it. Yeah, it's just that it's where people I heard where where people started. You know, like yeah. Now, I mean, look, I and and again, I've I've said this before that I'm not wild about conspiracy theories, and people have been yelling at me for as long as we've been reporting on Rupnik. Um, that you know we're we're somehow ducking the obvious truth that Pope Francis is behind all of this, and so there is there is a sort of reflexive you know if you say that you know people are reflexively treating any coverage of you know what what um, Rupnik is accused of and what Rupnik has been credibly and judicially convicted of doing, um, you know, is somehow anti-Francis. It's true that there are. You know, the, the reverse is also true. There are people who say that if you speak of Rupnik, you must speak of Pope Francis, that the two are somehow indistinguishable. And and that's not something I've had a lot of time for. Um, but I, I, again, it is a seriously bad look. It's not that implausible he's, to think that the Holy Father might be among those who are protecting in certain ways Rupnik or who impeded the Rupnik process. It's not necessary to believe that because, for example, Fire Quarter would have decided whether to waive the statute of limitations and not the Roman Pontiff personally. The CDF would have decided when to lift the excommunication and not the Roman Pontiff personally. So it's not necessary to believe that the Holy Father is sort of the driving force here. But the Holy Father does have, uh, has personally rehabilitated or attempted to rehabilitate people who are accused of serious sexual misconduct. That is a right, fact. But if, if Francis is is interfering in the the criminal canonical judicial process against someone who takes every box down the list of crimes that Francis himself has constituted and strengthened the processes and punishments around. That's the nightmare nuclear winter scenario for Francis's credibility as an abuse reformer. Like Vosestes means nothing. Comunia Madre means nothing. If he's saying, well, yeah, that, but then I'm going to I'm going to do end run around and interfere in the process as much as I possibly can if I like the guy. That's I think that's characteristic. I mean, when you say Francis' credibility of an abuse reformer, I think that's relatively characteristic of things that we've seen in this papacy. I think that the story of the Francis papacy with regard to reform of abuse is that the Holy Father has um, enacted several times policy reforms and urged bishops to take seriously allegations of clerical sexual abuse and misconduct 
especially and especially to take them seriously in prayer and to consider spiritually what their response ought to be, and at the same time, persistently demonstrated the degree to which his own personal loyalties or personal judgments outside of a canonical process of judgment or an externally auditable process of, of investigation have been given priority. That's not a judgment like, you know, of the Pope's motives or anything like that, but I think the Pope has been both a policy there, reformer. Sorry, sorry, you said it's not a judgment of the Pope's motives. How does, it, how does it not become a judgment? Like, there's no good motive for doing that. All I'm saying is I'm not assigning the motive to it. I, part of it is I think the Pope gives in his um, approach to governance on any number of issues a priority to personal, uh, a sort of preeminent prior, prioritization of personal discernment, right? That the Pope regards and, and says this. I'm not saying anything that the Pope doesn't say. The Pope regards personal discernment as a critical part of leadership decision-making at times over and against established processes by which leadership decisions are made. Okay. The synod on synodality, I actually think, is an example because <laughs> the Pope wants to emphasize the importance of this notion of synodal discernment and decision-making in the church. And I think that's fine, actually. I think synodal discernment means we are all baptized, we all have a role to play in the way that the church prays and and, and in the way that we sort of um, bring our spiritual life into making known to our sacred pastors our, our views on things so that bishops and, and others can make serious decisions. But the Pope's structure for the Synod on Synodality lies entirely outside of the previously ex established and existing structures for synodal consultation in the Church. Pastoral councils at the parish and diocesan level, the Presbyteral Council, the College of Consultors, the... the <laughs> the diocesan synod as an institution, right? The Pope didn't call for a diocesan synod in every, in every diocese. He called for a sort of, which is a real and existing thing by which there are statutes and rules of order and people come together and pray and thinking. He didn't, and there's a sort of recommendation, he didn't call for a diocesan synod in every, in every institution. He called for a parallel process of synodal discernment with no regard for the existing structures that have been built um, to, to, to aid in that discernment and no effort to sort of strengthen them or utilize them. The Pope does not demonstrate in his leadership a dependence on or a preference for the existing procedural apparatuses of the church, whether it's synodality or criminal justice. Okay. There's a difference between not having a preference for or even choosing not to avail yourself of those things. There's a difference between that and saying, well, I'm going to use my diocesan curia to undercut and publicly discredit the Vatican curia and my own religious I'm society. I'm not saying that the Pope did, did that. I'm not no, saying but that I'm saying that that's where, the, that's where the logic of Francis is actually the motivating force behind the rehabilitate and protect Rupnik thing. There's no evidence. There is no evidence that the Pope gave the diocesan investigator of the Diocese of Rome access to sealed files from the CDF. There's no evidence of that. It is possible, as are any number of other... Well, hang on, I'm going to... I, again, I don't go in for conspiracy theories, but I, I, I want to make sure we speak precisely. We have no evidence of we that. We have no evidence of that. But it is possible. It's po I think it's possible, but I, I'm just saying... It's when, one of actually only a few possible permutations. Yeah, there's only three, there's only three options, which is either the, the, the investigator for the vicariate of Rome was effectively and didn't have access to the files and just decided he was going to do his own right. summary investigation of something he was wildly outside of his competence and involved poking underneath the sacramental seal yeah. for which he himself should be disciplined if that is the case um that's option one option two is someone leaked him the files under the table in which case you have to ask was it was it the jesuits or was it someone at the ddf and why or he was given access officially and again same question says who and why and yeah, one of the potential answers to that is, well, Pope Francis said he could have access to it. And that's why, because everyone at the DDF, everyone at the Society of Jesus, and everyone at the Diocese of Rome works for him. Okay, that that's an option. Again, we don't have any evidence of that. But I, I just want to be clear, like, if that's actually what he did... I, I don't I don't like that is a that is a horse of a different color, even of even compared to the Barros and the Chile, whatever, even compared to Zanqueta. 
Um, the, you know, that is a, there was a criminal process. This man was convicted of a crime and saying, well, I'm going to undercut the judicial credibility of the entire canonical press, not, not choose to avail myself of it, not try and shield this guy from exposure to that process. But that process having been carried out and concluded, I am then going to try and subvert it. I'm going to try and subvert the rule of law in the church on sexual abuse, most of which I wrote. That is cataclysmically bad if that's what actually happened. And that's why I'm not like keen to leap to that conclusion. Yeah. We have said from the very beginning that the Rupnik case is an important sort of litmus test or indicator of the overall success of the efforts of, of reform with regard to um, Episcopal neglect and clerical and sexual abuse and misconduct since 2018. We've said many, many times that the Rupnik test is a great case study. But what's bizarre about the Rupnik case is it had gone away. Yeah. Like he was kicked out of the Jesuits. Okay. He was in the sort of canonical gray area over his clerical status, but like it, he had gone away. He was hanging out at the Centraletti, which was bad. He was continuing to effectively be welcomed as a member there which is bad, but in terms of, you know, the great global attention span of the church and its, you know, proximity to the Holy See and the person of the Pope and everything is a scandal. Like that was all done. And they, they've dragged it back up, re-raised all of these questions and added a few more and turned the temperature up on it, you know, to 11 and no, like it was, no one was asking. Well, let me, yeah, let me just say. It was completely spontaneous. Like the Diocese of Rome just seems to have said, well, how can we, how can we turn the fallout of the Rupnik scandal into a really, <laughs> really toxic, dirty I bomb for us? I don't think they knew that they were doing that. I, I don't think they. Well, then they're the dumbest I, people I, in church administration in the world. I don't think they world. appreciated the way in which this would be received. I think they just thought. They thought everyone was going to read that statement and go, oh, well, maybe Rupnik's innocent. Well, I, I guess I, all those I, women were lying. I don't. I don't think that they appreciated the degree to which calling into question the canonical process by which Rupnik's excommunication was declared would would um, upset his victims or upset. undercut the DDF. Yep. And uh, and while I think you find that astounding, one of the points I wanted to make about Rupnik as case study is that what we are seeing is, I think, microcosmic of the situation of the church with regard to this stuff. There are folks who want to do good, clearly, and have used the limited authority they have to do as much good as they're able to do. Some of them only perhaps getting it or perhaps only responding to media pressure, but perhaps only really seeing it because of media and public pressure. And here I think of the Jesuits who initially put restrictions on Rupnik, didn't announce them. But once media pressure came forward, used the fullness of the authority that I think that they perceived, understood themselves to have to do as much as I think they understood themselves to be able to do. Then there are folks who are, um, you know, in disbelief about the gravity of the problem or take the problem to be sort of unreasonable hysteria or something like that. And then I think there are folks who just don't get how these things impact people and the degree to which this stuff can be demoralizing in the life of the church and discouraging in the life of the church who just don't understand it. I think there is, I guess what I'm saying is there's virtue, vice, and ineptitude uh, all in a mix, like all sort of mi mixed up together. And all of them, I think, are uh, manifesting in the Rupnik case right now very concretely. And maybe that's the best possible snapshot of where we are with the kind of Vosestis reforms that we could ask for. There's virtue, vice, and ineptitude, and there are many, there are not sort of public systems of accountability or fail-safes such that most of the outcome of a sexual abuse case, this is a big takeaway, I think, from Rupnik, most of the outcome of a sexual abuse case is dependent right now in the life of the church on whether it happens to be under the ages of, of someone who gets it or someone who doesn't or someone who won't. That, that there's not sort of a systematic approach to this yet and perhaps won't be such that so much of the, the, the power of reform is dependent on individual personalities. And that will only ever have mixed results. Um, it'll only ever have mixed successes. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. I don't disagree with that. Um, it's, a, it's phenomenally depressing, but I don't disagree <laughs> with that. Well, that's where we are.
If you're right and they really had no idea that releasing a statement calling into question the entire canonical process of the DDF and SJs into Rupnik was going to be a big deal, then like people like that should they shouldn't be allowed to operate a can opener safely. Like it, that that's not. Well, I think what it shows is you need better. That's not naivete. That's not ineptitude. That's criminal ineptitude. I mean, I think I think it is manifestly clear that depending on individuals to carry out reform is insufficient, and you and the reason why. Uh, look, I've said this before. I said it to you yesterday. I think the Dallas Charter is in need of serious reform, and actually will be up for debate and reform in 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 the fall. At the U.S. Bishops' meeting, the Dallas Charter is in need of serious reform, especially with regard to the protection of rights of priests and due process rights of priests and these kinds of things. But I think the Dallas Charter has had significantly positive effect on the church in the limited scope of areas in which it attempted to have positive effect on the church because of the public accountability element, because dioceses have to pay Stonebridge, which is an outside firm, to audit their compliance with the charter every year, and because charter compliance audit is published, there have been few dioceses left behind. Diocese, not none, but there have been few dioceses left behind. Dioceses have wanted to affect a cultural change because they they have built a system by which people are watching. The Rupnik case is a perfect illustration of the fact that you can create the kinds of reforming processes you want to create, but if you don't pledge yourself to some kind of accountability, like the audits and charter reports and that kind of stuff, the processes aren't going to do anything except when they happen to be in the hands of a good person. And even then, that good person may well be stymied. Right, but this isn't a question of creating a climate of public accountability. They're waving their arms in the air in the Diocese of Rome saying, hey, look at us, look at us, look at us, look at this thing. Yeah, like, because they don't, yeah, I think, I think because that's insane. Like, this is a press release. It's not like they can, like, like you can say what you want about the, the questions raised by the fact of the canonical visitation and its apparent scope or whatever. But they were under no obligation to say anything about they that. They didn't have any obligation to say anything about it at all. I think De Donatus really wants to rehabilitate Rupnik. I, that is clear. I think De Donatus wants to rehabilitate Rupnik. Why? I can't understand. Why he's willing to stake a lot of his capital on it? I can't understand even more. Maybe he's doing it to show off for the Pope. Like maybe if you're right, maybe if like the the perception is there's a there's a sympa- there's a latent yeah, sympathy he, for Rupnik with Francis. Because it was my understanding De Donatus was going to get canned anyway, and like has been on the chopping block for a long time because um, the Diocese of Rome has run like a complete basket case, and Francis basically ordered an apostolic visitation oh, yeah, of his right, own, his own diocese, diocese. Yeah, and right. concluded that it was a total mess, yeah. and that De Donatus basically shouldn't be trusted to run a you know a brasserie, let alone yeah. a. Um, I love that you said hot dog stand and I said brasserie. That's that's delightful. <laughs> What's funny about that is that my brother-in-law owns a food truck, which is fundamentally high-end hot dogs and other things, and it's not easy to run. No. No. He's, to make that go and make a business of no. it is actually quite a great deal of work, so I don't know why I would say hot dog stand when I see a guy actually toiling to make his hot dog stand. Well, no, your point is actually still well made. He shouldn't be trusted to run a hot dog stand. I wouldn't trust him to run my brother-in-law's awesome food truck. Yeah. Check it out on Instagram, Mike's Coney's. I'm I'm jealous that you have access to, you know, a hot dog. Did I tell truck. you that I invented a dish? Did I tell you about the dish I invented? No, there's a JD hot dog now? No. So they also sell um, grilled cheeses and cheeseburgers. I mean, this this is the great trifecta. Yeah. And the grilled cheeses are awesome because they um, put shredded cheese on the outside of the bread. Oh, yeah. Get a nice crust on that. Yeah. So yeah. I got my nephew, who who's one of the principal cooks of the food truck, to... Um, to make me one of their signature grilled cheeses, but to put a hamburger patty in the middle of it. <gasps> and I call it the grease ball. And uh, and so, like, whenever I go to the food truck, I It's like a super ball. patty melt. Yeah, it's some, it's, 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 it is. And sometimes he'll put, if he has green chilies in there, and he'll oh, some yeah. green chilies and stuff like that. But so I've been super excited about the grease ball. Well, someone came to the food truck recently and basically Sorry. asked for what I order. And uh, my brother-in-law goes, oh, yeah, that's on our secret menu. It's called the grease ball. And the girl was like, oh, in that case, I'm not like, I think the name, which for me is a big selling point. Right. It's not so much a selling no, you point. Need to, you, need to tweak the, you need to tweak the name if you want right, it to sell. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. There, there's, a only, there's a small share of people out there who really want to eat something called the grease ball. But if you go to wherever Mike's Coney's is and order a grease ball, they'll know what you're talking about. I mean, about. the problem with grease ball is it's, it's, it's not far enough out there as a name to be fun as a deterrent. Like if you yeah. called it the heart attack, people yeah, were right. like, yeah, exactly. give me a heart attack. Like, yeah. you know, it's kind of, it's like grease balls. just like, Ooh, I, yeah, uh, that's uh, sure. 
But it is really, really good, as is everything for Mike's Coney's, which is not a sponsor of the show. I just like it. But I'm speak- kind of actually, wait a minute. I go to Denver not infrequently, and we usually go out to dinner at least once while I'm in Denver every time. You have yet to take me to the hot dog truck, which it would be infinitely better by the sounds of it than any of the places yeah, we've we actually hit, gone gonna, for dinner. We should have a little pillar um, trip to Mike's Coney's. Pillar meetup. A pillar meetup. We should do a that. We should do a pillar meetup at. Oh yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm game for this. I think there are going to (laughs) be. Gosh, my sister. I don't know if my sister is going to be happy about me talking about the truck or not. But I think they're going to be too late now. uh, I think they're going to be at the Denver Botanic Gardens like pumpkin festival for the next couple of weekends. So can head on down there at the at the um, get the grease ball the Chatfield you you know the Chatfield um, Botanic Garden site and uh, and they'll be there anyway. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was actually brought to you by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum and robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. And Ed... The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and at JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. You're my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. We're in your office, and that's a wrap.